0: So we need to be clear on like what a representative is supposed to do. They need to be like us. They need to have the same struggles, the same fears, the same hopes. They need to have our values. They need to be in the same boat as us. And if they sink the ship, they too are going down.
1: From Fast Company Magazine, this is world-changing ideas. Where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. I'm Talib Vizram. On today's episode, Improving Democracy. What do you think is the biggest threat to our democracy?
0: Uh, a public that doesn't care about preserving the rights we
1: have. That was the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She went on to say she had faith in the spirit of liberty, which is something intrinsic to a democracy, but not always easy to achieve or even to agree on. For many years now, the U.S. has seemed more politically divided than ever before. Only 16% of Americans think democracy is working well, and almost 80% live under one party rule in their state. The violent riot that stormed the capital in January served as a reminder that our democracy is very much still a work in progress. But if we're
0: really to make democracy vigorous again, if we're ready to revivify it, we need to get involved in a new project of the citizens and the politicians.
1: Rory Stewart is a former UK politician and is a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale. He says democracy matters because it reflects an idea of equality, liberty, and the dignity of the individual.
0: The idea that each individual should have an equal vote, an equal say in the formation of their government. Democracy is not simply a question of structures. It is a state of mind. It is an activity.
1: Stewart has called for strengthening local elections as well as getting more honesty from politicians, but he really stressed the need to build trust between politicians and the public. While that sounds great in theory, seeing it become a reality requires some serious work. And that's what my guest today intends to do by implementing democratic lotteries. Adam Cronkright is here to tell us how this idea of randomly selecting ordinary people to govern could help promote true democracy. Adam is the co-founder of Democracy in Practice, and he's on the coordinating committee of Democracy R&D. And he founded Of By Four, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to replace politicians with everyday people. Well, welcome to the show, Adam. It's great to be here with you. So, uh, Adam, you know, you've been in this field, I guess the, the democracy field now for about a decade uh, in, in several different capacities. What was your goal in starting Of By Four?
0: Yeah, so it was a few years ago that I was helping to launch a global network of organizations and practitioners working with and advancing democratic lotteries. They're great people doing important work, but they're mostly going at it Top down approach. And it felt like we we're really missing a bottom up kind of movement for change and that we weren't reaching people. And so I just started talking with people. Uh, in a year, I talked with over 400 folks in 10 different states, you know, on front steps and on sidewalks, canvassing in different parts of the country. And what I found was that when people hear about this vision of using Democratic lotteries to to do away with so much of the stuff that we hate about politics. Folks from all political stripes really got behind it. When I saw that, it was right around that time that a guy named George contacted me. He'd been on a different path, but ended up in the same place. And, you know, we saw that no one was really looking to reach people and build power in this way and that we were going to have to get it started ourselves. The goal with Up by Four is to free America from politicians, the parties, and all their B.S., and give us a government that actually works and that does right by us as a people. And the way that we're gonna do that is by replacing elections with democratic lotteries.
1: It's super interesting. And it, most people wouldn't know. I mean, I didn't know that this is something that's been around for a very long time, rooted in you know, ancient Greek democracy. But, you know, how does it actually work logistically? You know, w- just very kind of briefly, uh, how would a Democratic lottery work?
0: Yeah, so just before I explain how it works, uh, I want to make sure we're clear on kind of what it is for folks because it's, it's new for a lot of folks. Sure. So, you know, a Democratic lottery is the way representatives are supposed to be selected in a democracy. You know, it's, As you mentioned, it was the way they were originally selected and uh, it's the way that we should be selecting members of Congress. And that's for two main reasons. So a Democratic lottery does two important things very well. The first is that it cuts out the division and the corruption and the dysfunction that we get with elections. There's no stump speeches, there's no super PACs, there's no attack ads, there's no campaigns, because none of that makes any difference with a lottery. And the second thing it does is that it gives us real representation. So a democratic lottery calls on the service of everyday citizens, people that look like us, they live like us, And it does it in a way that ensures that the final group reflects the makeup of the population, right? So you have young and old, rich and poor, you have liberals, conservatives, moderates, you have nurses and truckers, teachers and farmers, and all the different perspectives and lived experiences in in the population. So that's what it is. And how does it work? So usually it has two rounds. And so the first round of the lottery, you, you try to cast a real wide net you select a large number of people and ask them if they're willing and able to serve. And from everyone who says that they are, then you take them and their demographic information and you run them through a second lottery selection. So that you end up with a group That's the right size, and that reflects the demographics of the the population.
1: So you did one of these Democratic lotteries and and set up a citizens panel in in Michigan very recently. Can you briefly talk about how that worked out? And, you know, did it work in practice?
0: Yeah, so we did the citizens panel on COVID-19. We used a lottery to bring together 30 everyday Americans from all walks of life for them to try to work together and find some common ground and point a direction forward on the pandemic. They spent six weeks together. They fielded testimony from a range of health and economic experts. They worked through differences together. And they developed 12 policy recommendations. And in the process, I mean, this was in Michigan on COVID. So this is the most charged issue in the most divided state. And it was last October and November. And it seemed like the crazier politics got all around them, the firmer they held to their charge of working together and representing everyday people. So they were able to develop these policy recommendations. They didn't agree on everything, but they mostly agreed on most things. And they were able to, you know, respect one another and care for each other.
1: Did things get politically charged? I mean, you know, I think part of the reason you're doing this is to kind of eliminate some of the divisiveness. Did you see that happening? So, yes, things things did get charged at times,
0: especially, you know, they're not just coming
1: together to see,
0: can we talk with each other? Can we listen to each other? they're trying to make some decisions together. And so you when know, the rubber meets the road, it, it can get heated, but they were able to be respectful. They were able to actually listen to each other and, and feel listened by each other. You know, that's what you tend to see here when you cut out the pundits and the politicians, right? And it's just people directly engaging with other people. And you might not see eye to eye on everything, but you see where they're coming from. And you see that they're not crazy or stupid or traitorous or any of the other things that that the parties have us believing about the other side. And so they were able to work through that. And in the process became quite close. It seemed like the crazier things got outside of the panel, the, the more seriously they took their charge of kind of being this oasis and all the partisanship.
1: You know, some of the citizens that took part, uh, you know, I saw your video recap. Some of them got quite emotional at the end when they were talking about their experiences, right?
0: Yeah. We don't have a lot of opportunities as citizens to feel important, to feel like our opinion matters. They were called upon to step up and do something really important, to represent their fellow, fellow citizens, their neighbors, and to do that together. We also don't have a lot of opportunities to work closely with or even talk with people who are politically opposite from us, you know, or from, from a different side of the tracks, you know, different part of the, the community. You could tell that they loved that opportunity, that it was great for everyone
1: all around. And so yeah, people got quite emotional when it was coming to an end. You talked a little bit about the perceived advantages of this system, getting rid of corruption, et cetera. Can you go a little bit more into that? You know, isn't basically the idea of electing officials democracy in the first place?
0: I don't think so. We believe this myth that elections mean democracy. But to me, you know, democracy means that the power to govern is in the hands of the people, you know, that we govern ourselves. You know, electing a politician or a group of politicians to rule us, to govern us, That to me is not democracy. When we talk about corruption, what we're doing when we're doing an election is we are awarding power to those who can win and keep winning cutthroat popularity contests. And so what are the types of people we often get? The types of people who enter those contests are often slick, ambitious performers, Mm -hmm. and they have to spend most of the time fundraising and attacking each other to kind of collect our votes so that they can go off and do the bidding of their parties and the special interests that back their campaign. And they're not in the same boat as us, right? So as representatives, they're supposed to represent us, and yet they're not gonna be affected by the decisions they make the same way we are. Most of the folks in, in Congress are millionaires. you know. They have a you know, you know, future in politics or in lobbying. And so not only are they oftentimes just to get into those positions already in the pockets of their party and, and special interests, but, you know, they don't have an incentive to have our back. You know, they could sell out the public and do pretty good for themselves.
1: But is it not a, a problem that, you know, a lot of these citizen representatives would not have a lot of experience, perhaps not a lot of education? I guess Donald Trump is a perfect example of someone who came in with, you know, no experience. It was problematic for a lot of people. Do our politicians need experience?
0: It's a great question. First, we need to distinguish between different types of politicians. So Donald Trump was the president. No, that's the executive branch. Mm-hmm. And that's the side of government that's tasked with getting things done, executing the, the will of the people, so to speak, running the government from day to day. And that side of government, yes, you need qualified, experienced administrators, people who know how to get things done, lead teams, you know, meet deadlines, et cetera. When we talk about the legislative branch, Congress or state legislatures, those are our representatives. So we need to be clear on like what a representative is supposed to do. Our representatives are supposed to represent us on the big values questions. Right? So how do we want to live together? What rules do we want to live by? How do we want to spend our tax money? And so you have experts and you know, affected stakeholders. They provide testimony, staff, draft legislation. And then our representatives are supposed to wrestle with the pros and cons, think about what's most important to us and then make the final call on our behalf. And then the executive branch is supposed to go do it, right? Make it happen. Mm. That's how it's supposed to work. And so when we think about qualifications, what qualifications, what experience do representatives need? The three most important ones are they need to be like us. They need to have the same struggles, the same fears, the same hopes. They need to have our values. They need to be in the same boat as us. You know, They need to be affected by the decisions the same way we're going to. It's the only way we can trust that they're going to have our back and not sell us out, as if they're in the same boat as us, you know. And if they sink the ship, they too are going down. And the third thing they need is to not have their hands tied. You know, they need to be able to follow their moral compass and steer the ship in the right direction. And so, with elections, what do you get? You get a group that never is representative of us, you know, as as a, as a population. They don't look like most of us. They don't talk like us. They don't live like us. They're certainly not in the same boat as we are. And They have their hands tied the moment they go in. They're they're oftentimes, just to get there, they have political debts that they racked up. They have a party to please. And so to me, it's like the least qualified bunch to represent us. And so then when we think about everyday Americans selected by lottery, a Democratic lottery is designed to give you a group that is just like us as a population. Those folks are gonna be still in the same boat as us because they're called on to serve one term and then they're going back to their home just down the street. They're going back to working alongside of us as as accountants and as waitresses, you know, and as engineers, right? And so they've got to live with the consequences of their decision the same way we do. Yeah. And then the fact that they were selected in a lottery, they don't owe their position to any party or any donors or anyone else. And so they're free to actually follow their conscience and decide what they think is best, what they think is right, something that we don't see a lot of in politics these days.
1: Yeah, so, so how do you see this scaling up? I mean, this was done in a, on a very local level in, in Michigan. Do you foresee this as something that is possible on a state level, on a national level? And if so, how, since we already have our, you know, very ingrained system of, you know, Congress?
0: Yeah, so I want to be very clear. You know, we did the citizens panel on COVID-19 in Michigan. The idea there was to give, you know, America a glimpse of what we're talking about. But we're not talking about scaling up citizens' panels. We're not talking about doing citizens' panels all over the place. Uh, We're not talking about government by citizens' panel. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is replacing elected politicians in Congress and our state legislatures with everyday people selected by lottery. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the lottery is key is precisely because it scales so well. If all of America were just 100 people and we had an important decision to make, right, you know, whether to raise taxes or to invest in infrastructure, or to, to go to war, what would be the most democratic, most American way to make that decision together? We'd get together, everyone, we'd talk about it, and we'd, find, you know, we'd arrive at a decision together. You'd have young and old, rich and poor, we'd get together, we'd work through it as a community. But America isn't 100 people, it's you know, 300, 320 million people. So we can't all get together, but you can use a democratic lottery to select 100 of us, or 500 of us, that reflects the whole population. And they can get together, young and old, rich and poor, liberals, conservatives, moderates. They can get together. They can talk about it. They can work through it and make a decision together in the same room, just as if we were still a small community. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that this this scales perfectly. Quite frankly, it's elections that don't scale. It's The, the system we have in place was put in place when the largest city in the country was 40,000 people, you know, and- You know, there was a time when when you could conceivably know your elected officials. That time is long gone.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this has been done as well on on, on a global scale. I mean, you know, you're part, correct me if I'm wrong, you're part of a group called Democracy R&D, which really is a network of organizations that kind of promotes these lotteries around the world. So how widespread is this idea globally? Are there any kind of countries where it's particularly taking shape? It's quite widespread globally.
0: There's a lot of citizens' panels and citizens' assemblies that are being done, particularly taking off in in Europe, Australia. And uh, there's also some places where it's starting to become institutionalized. And so you will have citizens' assemblies becoming part of the structure of government. For us, the vision goes beyond that. It goes to kind of cutting out the middlemen, because what you see time and time again is that you get every day to people together, selected by lottery, you give them access to experts and you give them time to talk with one another and get to the bottom of the issue. They get along and they make sensible decisions. And that what almost always happens is that those get passed off to the elected officials who ignore those decisions or placate them because they don't align with the particular party agenda. Mm-hmm. And so for us, It's time to cut out the middleman and go beyond.
1: Is America ready for this type of system? I mean, you know, this happened, like you said, in many European countries, but things seem to often take a lot longer here. Or, you know, things seem to be, there's there's a lot more gridlock here. Things take longer to happen. So, I mean, is this realistic? You know, when Americans hear about this, they're often really eager for it. I I know that from having
0: canvassed uh, in different parts of the country. But one of the first things that we did and so by four is that we went out and get hard data on this question, and so we contracted one of the most respected polling firms in the country, Survey USA, to run a robust national poll. And what we found was that the first time that they ever hear about this, you ask Americans across the political spectrum, and two thirds say that a Congress of everyday people selected by a lottery would be better or much better than a Congress of politicians that are elected. Most of the rest are just undecided and unsure, and there's only a sliver. That say that they think it might be worse. And you might think, okay, well, that's, you know, it's just a poll. What happens when the rubber meets the road? Are people actually going to want this change? And so we asked them, would you support a constitutional amendment to change out congressional elections for a Democratic lottery? And a majority of every sub-demographic of the American population supported that. And that's just the first time that they're reading about it yeah. in a poll. Yeah. And so as we get this message out there, as we show people this, this journey that the citizen representatives went on, you are to be able to see for yourself what this vision for democracy looks like. And so the sky is the limit as far as America's desire for this, because it's been a long, long time that folks all across the political spectrum are fed up with the way things run in Washington. We don't trust Congress. doesn't matter which party is is in control. We don't trust Congress. We don't feel like we're represented for the most part. And the division in this country just keeps getting deeper. And that is a direct result of the fact that we use elections.
1: Just a couple of quick questions about uh, the people that would make up these panels. Uh, You mentioned earlier the the kind of jobs that these people would go back to. This panel, from the sounds of it, took a lot of time. So would people who naturally have more time on their hands, perhaps less demanding jobs, be the ones kind of signing up for this? Yeah, so...
0: Again, I, I want to be clear, we're not talking about running the government by volunteer citizens' panels. Our vision is replacing, you know, politicians and legislatures with everyday people. And so those everyday people selected by lottery, they too would be supported with a salary, with benefits, with staff, with training. Right. So that's not a real concern when you talk about the bigger picture. The the panel that we did, you know, we also we offered folks stipends and any kind of support that they would need to, to try to remove as many barriers as possible so that people can say yes to this call, right? They can step up. Right. You know, Even when you do that, even when you remove as many barriers as possible, there are still some folks who are not going to say that they are willing to do this or that they are able to do this. So that's where the lottery comes in, the second round of the lottery comes in. And what we see is that there's a ton of people who do step up to the call. So you have a large pool to pull from. And then when you do that second lottery selection, you make sure that you land on a group that is reflective of the population and isn't just the usual suspects that you'd expect if it was an open invite or some kind of you know public hearing, right? The folks who seem to have nothing better to do than to go shout, you know, at a hearing. You get folks who are you know outgoing and you get folks who are shy. You get folks you know who work completely different jobs. You have business owners. You have single mothers who are working. You have students. Folks from different backgrounds, different races, and you know, on the citizen panel we had a range from 20 years old to 87 years old. That's a really beautiful thing
1: and And how do you ensure that you're kind of getting a fair balance of you know different demographics, you know genders, ages, you know race, ethnicity? If the random selection is too tipped, would you intervene? How does that work?
0: The way that it typically works is that you base it off of the best data that you have. So usually we did in Michigan, it's census projections. So we went off the census projections for the state of Michigan in terms of, of gender, of race, of age, you know, of level of schooling. We found the best polling data we could find on Michigan in terms of people's views on COVID because this was a citizens panel on COVID. We wanted to make sure that you don't, by chance, select a panel that is folks who aren't at all concerned about COVID or it's all folks who are terrified by COVID. You wanna reflect the makeup of the population and the views that are in the population. Mm. So we took all of that data uh, and we worked with a team of computer scientists from Harvard and Carnegie Mellon who developed an open source algorithm. You take the pool of folks who have offered to serve, right? After you cast that wide net, and in our case, we only had the budget, we sent out 10,000 invitations all across the state of Michigan. So cast that wide net, from that you have hundreds of folks who responded and said, Yes, I'm willing to serve. And they respond with their demographic information. They respond with their views on COVID. And so you enter all that into the second round of the lottery. And the way that that algorithm works is that it randomly generates 1,000 unique panels of 30. We wanted a panel of 30. And each of those panels reflects the makeup of the state. And so once as we had that, we gave each panel a number. And then we did a live Powerball-style lottery Where we drew one number, that was one number, one one nine, and that was the group of thirty that then became the citizens panel. Those were the thirty citizen representatives. And you can go on our website; you can see we have a breakdown of how that group of thirty, how it compares to the demographics of the state. It's not exact, you know, down to the decimal. You know, there were some places we flexed a little bit as far as you know age and stuff, just to make sure that other areas like people's political leanings was pretty dead on and make sure things were, were quite reflective of the population.
1: Talking about the political divisiveness, I, I think it's safe to say that there are some dangerous elements in our society these days. You know, far-right extremist groups, QAnon conspiracy theorists. How would you ensure that they, these kind of fringe elements, that those people are not essentially governing us? I mean, or, or would you argue that they are representative society and, and should be included? Well,
0: I think that extremism, you know, populism, conspiracy theories, they tend to take root when people don't feel good about where things are heading and they feel powerless to do anything. They don't feel like they have any say. Hmm. I think that there's a lot of Americans across the political spectrum that feel that way and for different reasons. But it's been a long time now that the parties in Congress don't represent most Americans. And you know, we are completely shut out from major decisions that affect our lives. And that can make people desperate and desperate people, you know, often believe and do desperate things. And so I think that that's an important thing that we need to see is that like the way that you handle that in the long run is that you give people a seat at the table so that they feel like they can have a say and they can have some control over, over their lives, you know, their community, their country. And we all deserve that as Americans. Sure. And when when people with fringe beliefs get selected in a Democratic lottery, they have to engage and reach decisions with many, many other people who don't have those beliefs, who don't see things the way that they do. Yeah. This question of, you know, like, what happens if we end up governed by people, you know, with, with extremist views? You know, it's, it's similar to a question sometimes I get from folks more on the right, which is like, what happens if you pick a bunch of criminals, right, by chance, right? And that's just not how the Democratic lottery works. You, you're not going to, by chance, get 100 men when you select the Senate, because the Democratic lottery controls for that. And so you have 50 men and 50 women every time. It's the same way when it comes to people's views. You're going to have a handful of folks who have fringe views on both sides, and they have to engage with others. And you always find what happens is everybody becomes less hardcore, you know, because when it's not being filtered through pundits and politicians, and we're actually engaging with each other as people, we see that the other side isn't crazy. The other side doesn't hate America. The other side isn't stupid. They have some legitimate reasons why they feel that way. I might not agree with them, but I see where they're coming from. And and that is exactly the type of thing that we need in this country. We need people to feel like they you know, have a legitimate seat at the table, but they're not completely powerless just watching this play out on TV. And we need to start getting together and, and actually talking with each other as Americans.
1: Adam, lastly, let's talk a little bit about the future. Am I right in saying you have a documentary coming up?
0: Yeah, we are working on a documentary about the citizens panel that we did, and it's going to give you an intimate look into the journey of these citizen representatives. So we have high quality footage of every representative during every second of the panel, very kind of intimate personal video journals that they did after each session. We have on location footage uh, where we sent film crews to the homes of several of them and interviewed them. And we're going to weave that all together into a story that's, that's, you know, folks are going to be able to see for themselves what we're talking about here, right? This is a real glimpse of the type of vision for democracy that we're talking about.
1: When will people be able to see the documentary? The documentary should be ready uh, by this summer. Great. And what's next? Are there any kind of uh, any plans to do any more lotteries similar to the Michigan one on the horizon?
0: Yeah, a little bit farther down the horizon. We were planning to do America's first national citizens assembly. So it's going to be a much larger body. It's going to be 100 folks selected by lottery from all across the country. Uh, they're going to come together. They're going to set their own legislative agenda, and they're going to try to you know, get to the bottom of an issue that has divided this country for a long time and that Congress has failed to solve. They're going to take that all the way through to produce a bill that they present to the American public and call in on Congress to push wow. that through.
1: And, and how can people get involved with Of By Four?
0: We need to reach every corner of the country with this message. If you're listening to this and it connects with you, then help us spread the good word. That's the main thing people can do. Go to our website, sign up. And then when the documentary is ready, you'll be one of the first to see it. And we can help you organize screenings with your friends and family. So go to our website, it's joinofbyfour.org. And the other thing is that, you know, we need everyday people to fund and support this work. So if you want to be a part of pushing this forward, think about how much the, the future of America is worth to you and consider making a donation.
1: Well, Adam, I want to say thank you so much for for joining us today. This has been, been really interesting, something I really haven't thought about before. So thank you for enlightening us. Thanks, Adam. I think what Adam's arguing for is kind of, I, I think, initially what democracy set out to be, what elections set out to be. And somewhere along the way, politicians have become beholden to, to lobbyists and Corporate interests. You know, I think these panels work on a local level, as they did in Michigan. But I I think it will be a struggle logistically to get this done. I mean, you know, will this be a ballot initiative? Will this be a constitutional amendment? How will we actually get to that point when it's obviously not in the interests of, of the current lawmakers? That's it for our show today. Join us next time to learn more about the innovative leaders seeking to make a difference in our ever-changing world. Please give us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talib Vizran. Our show is produced and edited by Avery Miles.